Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molusky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, when a new year approaches, we anticipate change. Here in Washington, D.C., a new Congress will be sworn in, and when the 118th Congress arrives, it will feature a change of party control in the House of Representatives. After gaining eight seats in the midterm elections, the Republican Party will once again become the majority party in the House. Around the hemisphere, that raises the question of how the change in control of the governing body could mean, or what it could mean, that is, for U.S. foreign policy. Our stellar panel returns to help us analyze the possibilities. Please welcome back to the program, Wilson Center Distinguished Fellow, Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Latin American Program Acting Director, Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, John. Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. And a newcomer to America's 360, Brazil Institute Global Fellow, Nicholas Zimmerman. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me, John. A pleasure. It's great to have you. And, and you know, in, in the tradition of hazing here on America's 360, we're going to put you in the leadoff spot. I'll put the pressure on you as we begin our discussion, ask you the first question. And my, my first question is sort of a general one, and, and all of your thoughts would be useful on this. And do our neighbors, do our friends within the hemisphere, do the other nations of the Western Hemisphere pay close attention to U.S. politics? And is a, a, a turnover in the House of Representatives something that governments are thinking about? In a word, yes, very much so. Um, it, the implications and consequences can range uh, quite broadly depending on which of the subregions uh, we're discussing here. But anything from what is the future of budget negotiations and what does that mean for the U.S. development and foreign assistance uh, program? What does it mean for trade policy? Uh, what does it mean in terms of the possibilities for climate finance? What does it mean in terms of what we can expect development-wise on, on our borders and in terms of customs enforcement? And more broadly, that all is you know quite concrete and, and specific, even tactical, operational at times. But everyone is looking for which way the wind is blowing in Washington. What is the U.S. zeitgeist more generally as we begin to inch towards the 2024 election? What is the state of democracy in the United States? What is the state of the debate over where the United States sits in the world? There's more of an isolationist trend these days in the current debate than there has been perhaps in recent decades past, as well as calls for greater engagement. So across the gamut, I think uh, all of the countries in the region watch the midterms quite closely. Thanks. For, thanks for setting the scene. What, what I want to ask the rest of you to weigh in on is with that scene setting provided by Nick, what what are the areas you're looking at where there's anticipation of potentially uh, you know, good news or bad news in terms of dealing with uh, a reformed U.S. government? Chris, let's start with you. Well, thanks, John. I, I think one of the interesting things about Canadians as they interact with this election is it sort of operates on two levels. Many Canadians, given their political spectrum, 
see the Democrats as being more simpatico on social safety net and other issues. But on a practical level, um, there's really no partisan uh, favoritism. Uh, Republicans and Democrats treat Canada equally well and equally badly. There's a lot of border state uh, party members in, in both parties who antagonize the Canadians or are antagonized by them. So in that sense, there's not a uh, a cheering for one party or the other, except maybe among the general public. What Canadian governments tend to look at is the ability of the U.S. government to function very much as, as Nick was saying. Can it get things done? Is it going to be in gridlock? And what kind of things will it be able to get done? And partly because Canada is so affected by the swings uh, in power in the U.S., they, they like a little stability. They like things to be calm. So for them, signs of bipartisan cooperation are usually taken particularly well because it means that there's a center and that that center is holding and that Canada has a stable negotiating partner. But when we've seen the, bar, the polarization of the last couple of years, I have to say it alarms a lot of Canadians. And it's not because they pick one side or the other. It's just because they look at that and say, Oh, how, how, what do I plan to invest in my company? Where am I going to go to uh, Disney next year or, or whatever the issue is? Yeah, traditionally, this notion of continuity when it comes to foreign policy was seen as a, a strength of the U.S. and in these hyperpartisan times, uh, not, not as much. Benjamin? I think, interestingly, the results in Florida, I think, will be significant for U.S. policy in Latin America. The Democratic Party, you know, outperformed expectations nationally, but performed quite poorly for the second election in a row in Florida. What happened last time was a perception of, of timid policy in Latin America, particularly in the areas most sensitive to Florida voters, which are Cuba, um, Venezuela, Colombia, arguably Nicaragua as well. This time around, I think the reaction might be quite different. There's a lot of analysis that suggests that Florida might not be a swing state anymore. Now, obviously, electorally, that's a problem for the Democratic Party, but it is liberating for Latin America policy which is to say that the community of, of generally hardliners in South Florida might not have quite the hold on U.S. policy in the region as it has had in the past. And I think we've already seen since the election changes in U.S.-Venezuela policy that you might not have seen if domestic politics were the major concern. So I think you're right, John, there is some continuity in policy. There are bipartisan consensus on a lot of issues in Latin America. That is not true in South Florida on issues of major concern, but yet I think we're seeing some significant significant changes now as a result of the midterms. Benjamin, could you give one example of a specific policy change as it relates to Venezuela that would describe what you're what you're you just uh, said? Yeah, I think there's a community in South Florida that would prefer the sanctions policy in Venezuela exist in perpetuity or at least exist until the regime is completely erased from the map. What you're now seeing is re-engagement. You've seen an effort to soften somewhat sanctions on the Venezuelan oil industry in order to promote a political dialogue between the opposition and the regime. It's not a complete change. It's not a complete re-engagement. It's not even a diplomatic recognition of the government in Caracas. But what it is, is a demonstration that sanctions policy might be shifting in a way that would displease voters in South Florida, but might push the ball forward slightly on political negotiations. Cindy, in addition to the, the things that we've been talking about that, of course, you, I'd like to hear your reaction to, uh, could you also talk about the fact that, you know, there are, have been elections outside the U.S. too within the region that might have a bearing on, on this as well? 
Well, there have been, you know, a number of really important elections in Latin America and South America in this past year. Brazil, Nick can talk about that with the re-election of Lula um, in October and uh, the election of Gustavo Petro, a leftist, the first real hard leftist um, um, in Colombian history, um, and a number of other leftist governments in the last year or two, you know, including in Chile. And, and I think like the Obama administration, the Biden administration is not so concerned with the ideological coloration of a particular government. It looks to cooperate on very specific issues. Um, and if they can find common cause with Gabriel Boric in Chile on questions of the um, green energy transition or climate policy or oceans protection, that provides a, a, a real basis uh, for moving ahead. Similarly with Petro, it's a lot I think trickier in that um, uh, there are fundamentals of, of U.S.-Colombian relations that are being actively reformed, if not wholly transformed, including the way of fighting drugs, um, of entering into negotiations with criminal groups. I mean, a lot of things, but there's, I think, a, a, a strong dialogue taking place, a, a good exchange of views. And I would just say I agree with with Benjamin that, you know, no longer having to look over his shoulder at what uh, what's going to happen in Florida politics um, does give the administration a fair amount of leeway um, on some really thorny issues. And the kind of major change, I think, in U.S. policy that we saw um, last uh, weekend, at the you know, over the Thanksgiving weekend, um, with the approval of a license for Chevron to begin exporting oil to the United States without giving money to the Venezuelan government solely uh, to repay the existing debt that the Venezuelan government owes Chevron um, in exchange for, if you will, a return to the negotiating table, whether or not you think that the government's going to negotiate in good faith. But also, I think more significantly, not just for Venezuela, but for the entire region, is the, um, the allowing um, the UN to handle a package of up to $3 billion dollars in humanitarian assistance. Now, one can argue quite rightly that you know Maduro should have left let this money come in anyway, um, but he wasn't. He wasn't doing that. And if there can be greater assistance for um, ordinary Venezuelans who lack adequate food, who lack uh, reliable drinking water and healthcare and access to electricity and all those other things, if it can alleviate the humanitarian crisis, that's a good thing for Venezuelans in and of themselves, but it's also a huge help for the region because it lessens the pressures for Venezuelans to migrate to other countries, mostly in South America and also to the Caribbean. Thanks, Cindy. Andrew, uh, the, the changes in Congress uh, weren't the only changes in the midterms, right? Changes in governorships as well. And uh, I'm particularly interested in getting your, your thoughts on the border states uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border and how the changes both in Congress and elsewhere might affect this equation. You know, I, I think uh, the, the state with the largest border um, that, that shares the largest chunk of the U.S.-Mexico border, of course, is Texas, where you had Governor Abbott reelected. Um, so I, I think there won't be a big change there. You did have a flip in Arizona, uh, it would appear. I don't know whether that race is actually officially decided, but 
it appears that, that, that there's a flip from the Republicans to the Democrats in Arizona. Uh, but I think more broadly, the, the question or, or the issue that, that could either get better or worse, honestly, um, with the new Congress is migration. And, you know, I think on, on the one hand, now that the election is over, perhaps people start thinking about how do we solve the, the challenges. I, I think the tools are pretty clear. It, it's more a question of whether the politics lines up to try to resolve some of the issues, dreamers and, and um, some of the issues related to, for example, temporary work visas, things like that. There's a great opportunity there to solve it, but I think if you listen to what you, you hear, even as, uh, just earlier today, I was listening to some programming on the radio where you still have members of Congress talking about building walls and um, uh, it, you know the the threat of illegal migration. When the reality is, most of these people are are you know giving themselves up uh, at the border; they're not sneaking across by any chance, uh, by by any means. But I, I think there's there's an opportunity there. The other point I'd, I'd make, and you know, whether this helps or hurts on migration, is that while the Republicans did take control of the House, it's an incredibly narrow majority, similar to what the Democrats had. And what that means is um, you can't marginalize the extremists. Um, and so I think it really is going to come down to are the Republican, the more centrist Republicans and more centrist Democrats going to be willing to work together when they certainly could form a majority or do both parties continue to feel compelled to stick together? And, and given that if it's Speaker McCarthy, he's not going to have much maneuverability, it might be hard to get through the reforms uh, to migration, which, as I said, I think everybody knows what needs to be done, and this could be the right time to do it. Thanks. So Chris, you're up. Uh, well, just picking up on something uh, that Andrew said, one of the most interesting governor's races for the Canadians is the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. And the reason for that is that her administration had sued to block the operation of a pipeline that went from Canada uh, down through uh, Lake Superior, Wisconsin, then into the Upper Peninsula through the Straits of Mackinac and brought Canadian oil and gas uh, to the Midwest, but most importantly, to Ontario and Quebec. And it was a shortcut rather than going over the lakehead. In the 1950s, they built this pipeline to come through Michigan as a as an easy way of getting uh goods to market. Some 60% of Ontario's consumption of oil and gas and about 40% of Quebec's, the two big provinces in terms of votes in Canadian elections were affected by this. And it was a major dispute really tagged on to Gretchen Whitmer and her administration. She was reelected. And the Biden administration, to the Canadian dismay, proved unable to move her through her first term uh, away from this confrontational stance with Canada. So it's an example of an issue where uh, the retention of an incumbent also retains a problem for Canada uh, at the state level. So you're right to point it out. It can be a really important factor. Cindy, I know you have some thoughts you want to share on uh, the dynamics of the Congress. Sure. You know, Chris put his finger on it. I mean, the, the Republicans have a narrow majority, um, but they still will have control of the committee struck of all of the committees um, in the House. And I think that does have implications for Latin America policy and for policy on many other issues. And, and I would expect that there will be hearings that administration witnesses will be called to defend um, the, uh, the relaxing of sanctions and the uh, favoring of negotiations 
in in Venezuela. Um, they will be called on um, to justify spending on a, a lot of different programs. And and you know just as the the uh, oversight committees have pledged to open investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop and and uh, potentially impeach. Uh, the head of uh, the Department of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, um, there are any number of ways that uh, the agenda could get very complicated for um, the Biden administration and in, in, tied in knots in certain ways with constant requests for information and and uh, uh, the calling of hearings and witnesses and, and that kind of thing. And I expect that even though Latin America policy is not a burning issue um, for a great many people in the Congress, those who are really committed um, are going to do their best to make life uncomfortable for the Biden administration. I just had a thought that follows what, what Cindy was saying, which is I, I maybe the, the counterpoint. Um, while I agree with her, it, it, it could be complicated. It's also possible, I think, that a, a Republican-led House could be more aggressive on some issues that the Biden administration has been quiet on. I'm thinking, for example, of, of some of the concerns about the state of Mexican democracy, where um, you know you may have a, an, an opposition that is looking to make points uh, might raise issues that the administration didn't, and that the Democrats were uncomfortable raising, so as to not cause problems for their own president. Nick, I know you want to talk about climate finance uh, before we wrap today, and I promise to come back to you on that. But I wanted to ask you a quick question on the the politics within the the House. You know, the conventional wisdom is that tight margins could either lead to the type of gridlock that we've seen frequently, uh, too frequently, or it could open the door to more compromise because you need people to come across the aisle, as we saw in the recent Senate vote on uh, on gay marriage. What is your anticipation of the narrow majority that the Republicans hold in the House? I mostly agree with my colleagues. I, I think it presents opportunities. It's also going to be uh, tremendously chaotic. I, I think McCarthy will see himself pulled in broad strokes to, to the point made previously, um, more towards the the right than the center, though I do not uh, dismiss the possibility that on a given issue or or two, the dynamics might push them in a different direction. I also think that we need to keep in mind that the ways that the Republicans cobble together this narrow majority are far from uniform, despite the broader uh, trend towards the the right within the coalition um, in the in the Trump era. One of the reasons why they were able to secure the majority, of course, was because of the redistricting efforts uh, and the weak campaigning from the incumbent governor in the state of, of New York. Those are moderate swing districts. How those new uh, Republicans are going to play on certain issues uh, is unclear. So you might see possibilities, to your point, I think, John, uh, for some bipartisan uh, cooperation. And that, in turn, I think, will be seen, should it happen, uh, in the region, which is constantly looking to the health of United States democracy at a time when the region more broadly has experienced democratic backsliding, as Andrew actually just referred to in the case of Mexico. And it's obviously something that I've been watching very closely over the past year through the duration of the Brazilian election. So it does kind of all come together. Um, and I know we're going to talk about climate finance, but while I have the mic here um, to, to just make my presence felt in my, in my first appearance, I, I did just want to circle back quickly on Florida and, and, and migration, because in a lot of ways, that's where the intermestic quality uh, of, of the region kind of, uh, it, it really hits the road. 
And I agree with Cindy and Benjamin about the driving force of Floridian politics traditionally uh, and how the executive pursues certain policies, certainly in Venezuela and Cuba, but more broadly, Colombia as well. Um, But I don't think we should overstate it uh, because in many ways, I actually think dynamics around migration are driving um, our regional policy more so these days. And that in many instances, our policies in Cuba and Venezuela are being as dictated by the lack of quality in the partners that we have on the ground or a relative crackdown, as we've seen in Cuba, right, since there was an opening in the Obama era, um, as well as the shifts towards the left in the region itself that kind of demand a different posture, right? So part of it's Florida. I think the timing of the Venezuela rollout is probably not coincidental to Benjamin's point, but obviously that was a play in the works before they knew the results of, of the election. Um, and I, I did, did find that some of the points that Christopher and Andrew raised about the renewed focus on a perceived area of vulnerability for the Biden with a Republican House coming in to be really compelling and something I think that we're really going to have to watch for the next two years. Benjamin, the one of our ongoing themes has been about the health of democracies in the United States, in the hemisphere as a whole. Uh, this election, there were anticipation of problems, whether it would be violence or whether it would be a massive amount of recounts or denials of the outcomes. And it really didn't play out that way. How significant is that? I think it's an embarrassingly low standard for the United States at this point that we're just looking for elections that are peaceful and that there aren't widespread debates about you know electoral integrity. Um, that said, we shouldn't underestimate the impact on the U.S. image that January 6th had and that Latin Americans who model their democracies on the United States, who send delegations to Washington to observe our elections, not to find errors, but to learn lessons, um, really have a different view of the United States right now. So I also don't think we should minimize the importance of a quality midterm election and, you know, the acceptance of the results. So I think you're right, John. I think it was important. I I think it will also be important to see how, you know, our system operates and whether we do see consensus and bipartisanship or we see what Cindy alluded to, which is the kind of polarization and political warfare that would give a sense of paralysis and social breakdown. Uh, Time is tight, and I want to do a couple things. Chris has a quick comment he wants to make, and then Nick, as I promised, you can make your uh, share your thoughts on climate change. And then I'm going to ask each of you for a thought on the World Cup. We're going to do a little magazine-style segmenting of the program today and switch from geopolitics to, well, that's the sporting event that has geopolitics attached to it too. So I guess there's no escaping that. But but Chris, your thought? I think this is the perfect setup. One of the things I think that will be important about this midterm election as we look back on it from the future is this is we're starting to see a younger generation of Americans coming into political leadership. Now, not picking on on our older leaders, but whether it was President Trump, President Biden, Secretary, uh, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader. We have had leaders who are well over 70 running the country, whereas much of the West, Western Hemisphere has already moved on to the Generation X millennial and not quite Generation Z leaders, although we do now have a Generation Z uh, uh, congressman. So uh, this kind of age shift, when you're talking about issues from climate change to World Cup soccer, I think is an important one because it's we've been delayed. We've been sort of in some ways the, the one country that stayed with an, a kind of a 20th century view of the world in which we live. And as those younger voters look at the mess of Washington, I think they will inherit that. And I hope 
see an opportunity to do things a bit differently than they've been done before. And I think many of our neighbors in the hemisphere will find that rising generation is a lot more like them or shares a lot more of those worldviews than does the older generation that's been in Washington till now. See how, how skillfully Chris set you up, Nick, by mentioning climate change in his remarks. I did indeed. Thank you, Christopher, though it will be a very hard act to follow, and I'm going to try to be very brief. I think we just saw all of the world's leaders descend upon Egypt and the demand from the global south, and certainly this region was very clear about the need for the global north, the industrialized nations of the world to really come to the table in a more serious and comprehensive way when it comes to loss and damages and and, and green climate financing. And nowhere, I think, is that more pertinent um, than in the U.S.-Brazilian context and more generally in the Amazon Basin uh, context, which involves, of course, most of the of the major countries of, of South America. There is a very interesting bill out there. It was sponsored, and, uh, and now it has many co-sponsors by Stanley Hoyer uh, in the House. It's called the Amazon 21 Act. It's intended to be an appropriations measure that would deliver on President Biden's pledge to um, give direct U.S. government support up to $9 billion through fiscal year 2030 for global rainforest, globally significant rainforest. So this is not a regional-specific uh, uh, legislative uh, proposal because it would involve Congo, Indonesia, so on and so forth. But it does look at about $4.5 billion of that going into to the Amazon for sustainable development. You do some back-of-the-envelope math to 2030, and you're basically looking at what's on the table is the United States contributing its very own Amazon fund uh, on the basis of, of the Norwegian and German historic famous fund. That is a really big deal. Whether or not Republicans and Democrats more generally and now in a divided Congress can come together on the need um, to answer the clear demand from the world is going to be something that's really significant to watch in this newly divided Congress. You know, we just we talked about maybe doing an entire episode on the World Cup and we decided not to at this point. But clearly, soccer, football, whatever you call it within the region is an important part of the cultures of the countries that we're talking about. So if we get a quick final thought from each of you, uh, you know, going into sports center mode uh, on your thoughts on the World Cup. And it doesn't have to be about the sport. It could be about the geopolitics. You get to choose. But let's go really briefly. Chris, let's start with you. Well, Canada made it to the World Cup uh, to the surprise of a lot of Canadians and a lot of er everyone else, too. Uh, They they obviously have not made it all the way, but they can look forward to uh, being a co-host of the 2026 World Cup, which will get them in. And I think it's better for them to have gotten in on their own right so that in 2026, people don't say, well, you were kind of a, uh, you know, a gimme. They feel like now maybe they've earned their, their place in the spotlight and they can only improve from here to 2026. <laughs> Sounds good. Andrew Rudman. Well, Mexico, uh, too, unfortunately, uh, did not move on, uh, on on goal differential, which, of course, is is sad. Uh, although I'll just um, maybe set Benjamin or maybe Benjamin wishes to comment. The uh, the uh, Mexican coach is from Argentina, and there were a lot of expressions in the Mexican press that perhaps he would have uh, divided loyalties and that might have contributed to Argentina's victory. So thanks, Andrew. Cindy Arnson. Sure. I think that, you know, what's really inspiring to me, and I consider myself a growing uh, soccer fan, um, is the incredible spirit and energy of the fans um, in rooting for the team of, of their country. But for me, in terms of geopolitics, one of the most beautiful moments was when the United States beat Iran. And there was that just, you know, heartbreaking scene of one of the um, Iranian players sobbing and being comforted 
uh, by the U.S. player who had made the the single goal. Um, and I think that kind of sportsmanship and um, you know good uh, friendly competition without considering the other side, the enemy, you know, is um, is just really wonderful to see. What the world needs now, Cindy. Uh, Benjamin. I've had a, a personal challenge with the World Cup, which is that I'm watching it in, in Argentina with my family, and they've completely lost sight that we're Americans and have forgotten that the U.S. team is still in the World Cup. They're constantly draped in these messy jerseys and painting their faces blue and white. And every time they refer to we, I talk about the Iranian game and other opportunities for the U.S. And they say, no, 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 we're talking about Mexico. We're talking about the Poland game. We're talking about Messi. Um, so, yeah, so there's been some divided loyalties in the house. So, Nick, I forced you into the leadoff spot, so the least I could do is give you the final word here on the World Cup. Well, Brazil is going strong. Uh, hopes are running high that they can they can break the the now twenty plus year right uh, uh, gap, and since they last won the the title, but also uh, we're seeing how politics bleeds into football uh, again, or football, as I should say. Uh, you know, their star player Neymar came under some criticism for endorsing President Bolsonaro close uh, before the voting, um, alluding to some of the um, relief or help that he got on a, on a tax uh, case from, from the Bolsonaro government. And then the star of the first game for Brazil, who scored, in my opinion, um, I don't even think it's up for debate, the most beautiful goal. He, Charlieson has actually been out there. Um, he's very pro-COVID-19 uh, vaccines at a time when the Bolsonaro government was casting doubt on, on its efficacy and has been a real outspoken advocate on a, on a range of progressive causes. So uh, politics and football, it's always wrapped up into one. There's even some you know jokes and, dis- and disputes going on about how Brazilians can sort of reclaim the national shirt, the jersey, because that became a symbol of the uh, Bolsonaro campaign. Some people are joking, putting little slogans on it, saying, it's for the cup. Uh, so, you know, soccer explains the world, right? And it's certainly true in Brazil. Okay, well, thanks to all of you. Uh, speaking of explaining the world, Cindy, Nick, Benjamin, Chris, Andrew, we always appreciate your insights. And this uh, episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fascinella, and Zoe Reed. They were assisted by Gatano Pelice Sebelin, Tomas Andres, Michael Cavallo, and Joseph Bouchard. Uh, we'll return in a few weeks with another episode of America's 360. Until then, from all of us at the Wilson Center, we wish you all a most happy and healthy holiday season. Uh, for the program and the center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit WilsonCenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.